Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have somebody who's extremely special, um, one of the most just amazingly outspoken women that I know in the world of politics, sports, entertainment, culture, everything that we love. Uh, she has been somebody who's been in our lives for a very long period of time and who deserves her flowers. You know, in the South, we say you got to give people their flowers while they're living. Uh, none other than Jamil Hill. What's going on? How you feeling? I feel good. Thank you so much uh, for having me. And I guess we're both um, in hotel rooms right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm actually just in the hotel. I ain't even in the room. I'm just in the lobby, just hoping nobody walks by with a party going on. <laughs> How's it? What, what's going on? I mean, you're on this book tour. How, I mean, what's what's happening? How are you feeling? What's You got a new book out? Your ba- It's like a baby. How do you feel about all of that? Um, it's been intense. I mean, you know, you know how it is when you go out, go out and promote your book. I mean, you're doing so many media appearances, um, book events. You know, I, I was uh, joking, but serious, I guess. Um, I was thinking about when Mike, uh, uh, Michael Smith and I, when we first got uh, Sports Center, and we went on a, a, a quite a media tour then. That is nothing compared to oh. what I have been on <laughs> with this. I was like, that that was light work. <laughs> you know, and then the crazy part about book tours is like you might sell like 30, 45 books at a stop. But I mean, you got to go hit these hit these venues, hit these locations, hit these markets. It's insane. But you, you talked about Michael just briefly. Let me just go ahead and jump in. The unique part about my show is that we ask everyone the same first question, which okay. is that I want you to walk me through the arc of your career. Um, and you're a journalist at heart and you wear a lot of hats. Talk to me about the arc of your career from your first beat to the work you're doing now. And the reason we ask is because there are a lot of young, young people who listen, who just want to know how you got to where you are. So uh, my arc started pretty young. I was very lucky, uh, Bakari, because I knew in high school that I wanted to be a sports journalist. And in the 10th grade, I joined um, my high school newspaper staff. And the unique thing about how our high school newspaper was produced, this is back in Detroit where I grew up, is that all the Detroit high schools, um, your high school newspaper once a month appeared in the actual professional paper. So they did a special insert where all the high school of all the high school newspapers put it in, you know, side the paper paper so everybody could see it. And, you know, it was an opportunity for people to read about different high schools and what was happening there all over the city. And to do that, you had to go to a professional newsroom, the free press's newsroom. And so once a month we would go down there and put together our paper And that exposed me to a professional newsroom for the first time. And it was magical. It was really electric. As soon as I saw everybody running around, kind of seeming like they were crazy and all the energy and electricity of a newsroom, I was completely hooked. And um, after that, uh, the Free Press, they also created a high school apprenticeship program where they took 10 Detroit students and for six weeks, You, um, you know, came to the paper every day, assigned two mentors, and they uh, taught you about journalism, about how to write a story, how to interview people. And there was a woman, and I write about her in my book, named Dr. Louise Reed Ritchie, who, a black woman, she's in charge of this program. I read that, yeah. Yeah, and she got us right. Okay, right. <laughs> right. It's a black well, it's a strong black woman everywhere that, that fix you peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Listen to her stories. 
And then like, maybe that's just my, my growing up, but they are everywhere. They are everywhere. And so this woman, um, she whipped us into shape. She, you know, made us create a resume, um, taught us about like how to present ourselves, you know, just like kind of that early, early, you know, career advice that you need. And in a perfect storm, the summer I was an apprentice, the National Association of Black Journalists Convention was in town in Detroit. It was that's where it was that year. And she took us all down to NABJ. She made us get a student membership and she also um, made us go up to recruiters and editors and journalists and introduce ourselves and pass out our resume. So we had to introduce ourselves and say, hi, my name is Jamel Hill. I'm a rising junior at Mufford High School and I want to be a journalist and then hand you my resume. And she just, you know, really taught us um, about how we had to have internships professionally, what we needed to succeed. And getting that early advice at 16, um, you know, years old set me on my course. It shaped you. Yeah, it did. It definitely shaped me. So um, after the apprenticeship was over, uh, I had heard during the course of the apprenticeship that the free press hired high school students to answer the phones on Thursday and Friday nights during um, football and basketball season. And cause that's, you know, that's when the coaches, they would call in the scores of their games and then they give you a couple details about them. Like, you know, Bakari Sellers had 20 points, 10 rebounds and five assists, you know, pretty good stat line for you. That's my lifetime, lifetime stats right (laughs) as we speak. Right there. Yeah, adult right. league, adult league, people know. <laughs> adult league. And so, you know, they would give you a detail or two about the game. You had to write up summaries and they appeared in the paper the next day. So I applied for that job. So I was working for the free press in high school. Um, so by the time I got to Michigan State, um, I already had professional clips. Um, and, you know, I worked for my college newspaper. I had internships every summer. I interned at the Lima News the uh the free press the philadelphia inquirer the cleveland plain dealer and the news and observer in raleigh and the news and observer in raleigh hired me out of my internship so that was my very first job a lot of times in the print profession um you start off at a small paper but because i had so much exper- so much experience i started off at a mid-sized paper and that really um jump started my career so i was there for 2 years then i went to detroit I went to Detroit to uh, cover Michigan State football and basketball after I left you Detroit. Had nothing, uh, you had nothing to do with them. I mean, that's, that's light work. I mean, you could have been in Ann Arbor doing real work, right? <laughs> no, no, don't, don't even. See, why are you trolling me? Why are you trolling me? you lucky we threw a virtual screen because you might have got choked out by now. <laughs> I might get choked real quick. <laughs> um, but I was at the Free Press for six years. The, the great part is I covered my first Olympics in 2004. So, yes, I saw it when um, the U.S. men's basketball team finished with the bronze. It was trash that year. I was there. I witnessed all of it. They were bad. They got beat down by Puerto Rico the first game, and it was I like, mean, they woo. got beat by Puerto Rico. I think they lost in the championship to Argentina. Was that right? No, no, they didn't. I mean, they played in the consolation game. They didn't make it to the championship. Oh, right. Yeah, you're right. But yeah. like the, the semifinal game, they got beat by Argentina, I believe, who went and won. Yeah, the I think whole it was. Thing. Yep. Yep. I yeah. think it was Argentina. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, it was my first international reporting experience. And then I got my first column at 28. Uh, cover, uh, I was at the Orlando Sentinel. And I was Ooh. there for about two years when uh, ESPN came calling. And it was like a complete. Um, you know, accident in many ways, because I did not like ESPN wasn't the place I wanted to work. I mean, back then it was different. There was very 
clear demarcation lines between print and broadcast. The print people did not want to be on TV or want anything to do with TV. And obviously that started to change as you saw more columnists and, um, you know, print folks becoming television broadcasters. And I was kind of a part of that first strong wave of that because I go to ESPN and they hired me to be a columnist for ESPN.com. And because of some of the opinions I generated, they start putting me on TV. And next thing I know, I'm doing Around the Horn and the Sports Reporters and all these different ESPN shows. Yeah, all these different ESPN shows. And, you know, I, I to be honest, I mean, the only the reason I decided to focus on TV and briefly uh, give up writing to do um you know, to, to have a five day a week show is like the money. It was the money because, you know, what the, the, the ceiling you for can't be so honest about everything. I, I mean, but it's true because this, the ceiling for what a columnist would make versus no the ceiling, I mean, I, you, know, you know what I'm on saying? C, on CNN, I'm like, I, I meet people all the time and I'm like, man, you don't even look familiar. I'm like, what, what campaign you work on or Where'd you come from? And they're like, oh, no, I, I work at the Washington Post. And you're like, oh, no, what? no wonder you're in the green room. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a ceiling for what you will pay a writer. Meanwhile, um, and this is a true story. It's like what really changed my mind. Man, Matt Lauer got a new contract. And at this point I was doing, you know, TV was about half my job. They were paying this dude twenty five million dollars a year. And I was like, is that what you can make in television? <laughs> I mean, it was like, OK, I'm not saying I might get to twenty five mil, but if I get to a meal, I'm like, that's way more than any writer I know would ever be making. And so, yeah, I was like, yeah, maybe I got to get this TV thing like a whole full go of it, uh, because I mean, I knew that even before Lauer's contract, because the first time I did it was cold pizza then, which, you know, eventually became first take. And I did it. Uh, I did the show for a week. I didn't even know you got paid for it. Right. I had no idea. Next thing I know, this check for thirty five hundred dollars shows up in the mail. And I was like, oh, you get paid and you get paid this much. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Well, you know, and it was like people were asking me, but, they were like, how much money you get per hit? I was like, per hit. Wait, y'all getting paid? <laughs> what <are> we? <laughs> Sorry, Bakari, they didn't tell you. <laughs> So let me, let's jump, let's jump into it though. So let me, let me, cause one of the things I appreciate about, I appreciate about you is your professionalism, but staying true to who you are. And, um, you know, I think that there are a lot of comparisons that can be made about who Jamil Hill is, but for me, it's more kind of Fannie Lou than anybody else. It's kind of standing up to an authority figure, but always speaking your truth and being who you are. So Let's talk about something present day and we'll get to the book in a minute. But while I have you here, Kyrie, it's the moment, it's the, it's the issue of the day. I, I don't want to push you in a certain direction one way or another, but what's your diagnosis of Kyrie and the, the fallout thereof? So you picked a really good day to ask me because um, they just published my column. I just wrote about him for The Atlantic. Uh, maybe, um, that, I know what I'm doing. maybe I know what I'm doing you, a little bit. You might, you might know what you're doing. So <laughs> it's like the timing of this. I get it. Um, so here's my thing is and, you know, full disclosure, um, I, I, I know Kyrie a little bit. He and I did an event together um, in 2020, I think it was, 2020 or 2021, where uh, I moderated a conversation between him and Common um, about Breonna Taylor, because uh, he's very involved in social justice work. And some people may not know that. 
And so, you know, he, he's a bright person, um, definitely somebody who's always searching for deeper meanings and knowledge. And, you know, that's 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 who he is. So, uh, you know, the disappointment in this is for me. And again, I say this as somebody who, who does like him as a person is his inability to be accountable for what he did. And that is driving a lot of this. Um, all he had to say was either I made a mistake and or, you know, something else. But him trying to play um, word semantics by saying, oh, I didn't promote it. You didn't hear me say anything about that was anti-Semitic. I just posted a link. And I'm like, well, we're not crazy. Like you post a link on your social channels. You want people to watch it. You yeah. want people to be exposed to it. That's the whole yeah. point. And Bakari, I watched the documentary. It's three and a half hours it's long. Terrible. And that's three it's I, fucking terrible. It's, it's, it's like, terrible. And it's three and a half hours of my life. I can't get back. But within the first 20 minutes of this documentary, uh, you know what's up. And within the first 20 minutes, they quote Henry Ford, who, for the people out there who may not know this, Henry Ford is one of the most notorious anti-Semites in history. <laughs> in history. I mean, he and you in, know him better than in history. Yeah, he's from, right. He's from Detroit. Yeah, exactly. You, you you know you bad when Hitler praises you in his book. Adolf Hitler praised Henry Ford. Okay, because of his entire antagonistic attitude toward Jews, he wrote a four volume book about how the Jews was responsible from everything from lint lint on the carpet to <laughs> whatever. Like, I mean, this dude is awful. Okay, that's the first person they quote in this. Then. Like literally two screens later, they put up the six myths and falsehoods that are pushed by Jews. Number five, the Holocaust killed six million people. So this documentary is telling you in the first 23 minutes that the Holocaust didn't happen. And we quote Henry Ford. But yet Kyrie is like, no, I didn't push anti-Semitism. Dude, it's in the first 20 minutes. OK, I mean, I'm just going to so, tell you, I mean, I, he lucky. I, I think Kyrie's. 28 now 29 no i think i think he might be 30 well he lucky he ain't 35 because okay because if, if he was 35 he would hear people pulling up at the door and they'd be like pack his pack your bags and Kyrie be like where we going we're not going yeah. nowhere but, but because he's on the younger side yeah, yeah. you're right and, and he's still obviously a brilliant basketball player but it, it's the lack of uh, accountability you know, for me, and he's def and he's doing a lot of deflecting. And when you do that, people tend to, to think you're not being genuine. And he just he's just arguing for arguing sake. That's what it feels like to me, because I watched uh, his press conference today. I saw um, it today or, and he was rambling and it was just like Kyrie. he was rambling. I mean, he's asking reporters like all they all they basically want to know, man, is like, are you are you at all remorseful for doing this? Like, you can't tell me that. You wish, like, if you had it to do over again, you would post that link again because you wouldn't, right? And so he goes from that to, well, where were y'all when my ancestors, um, when 300 million of, or 300,000 of my ancestors were being buried? It's like, I, I, I hear you, but that ain't got nothing to do with the price of tea in China, all right? That has nothing to do with what they're asking you about. And so he, you know, I really think that there's a teachable moment there for him to have if he embraces what he does not know. And he is not willing to do that. And therefore he's in this situation where honestly it feels very much like he's about to talk himself up out of a job. It just feels and, that and way. Cause now height, he's got to meet the, with at the height of his, and, and I, I'm right, not sure. Of his career. 
And he says he's a student, but I'm not sure that he's a student of history as he says he is, because he needs to know that history books will erase him for ignorance. And it's happened Mm. before and it will happen again. Let's talk about your new book, Uphill. So one of the unique things I've had on this show, and it's probably something unlike any, I know you're doing your podcast rounds and you're doing your journalism rounds, but there's no other show. And this is a a somber, but sweet moment. I was able to interview uh, Cicely Tyson on Monday and she passed on Thursday about her. It was the last interview she did. And she was on air on camera and she was beautiful and she was smart and she was witty and she was who she thought she was or who we all thought she was. And one of the questions I asked her was, why did you write your book now? And she in all her wisdom said, because I waited until I had something to say. So why did you write your book (laughs) and why did you write it now? Well, um, and that's a great answer, too. And I'm like, but I know Cicely Tyson had plenty to say before she actually wrote it. Let me tell you something she said about Miles Davis. I mean, that that deserved this whole book. (laughs) But go ahead. <laughs> I know I love I, uh, I I love some of the uh, the the older drama. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's not like that old mess, boy. I tell you, because listen, I mean, I'll, I'll answer the question. But I interviewed Jennifer Lewis right after she wrote her memoir, and Jennifer Lewis off the hook. And all I got to say is Jennifer Lewis lived a life. And when I asked her about Gregory Hines, and I'm gonna just leave it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, oh, I did Jennifer. Uh, no, nah, I did. I interviewed Jennifer Lewis, too. And let me tell you, there's one thing. I mean, you and I both appreciate. We always tell folk, look, we're going to be honest with you. There's us, Jamil Hill and Bakari Sellers being honest. And then there's Jennifer Lewis being honest. That's a whole new level of honest. I was like, oh, oh, she keeping it real, real. OK, I see you. But uh, I guess in the spirit of Jennifer Lewis, I will tell you. I the time to write the book the 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 time was right in terms of the book because of money. That's what it, that's what it was. And I know you like are you gonna answer every question with money? No, I'm not. But right. uh, let me explain. Let me explain. She had to pay for this wedding, and I saw it. And your feet look good, and the sand look good. I don't know where you were, but I could tell by the way your feet and the sand looked that it was somewhere expensive. <laughs> no, but what I mean by that though, Bakari, is this is. You know, my my literary agent came to me and just said it was a lot of interest in the publishing world uh, in my story. And I was a little surprised at that because I know people saw me on TV and I had become a public figure. But I I, I didn't know if they would be interested in my actual story, you know, because I, I know that uh, a lot of people in my position get approached about writing about certain topics or maybe even. You know, because I've been approached this way before about uh, about writing a book with an athlete, that sort of thing. So I was used to that. But they actually they were like, no, no, no. He, As he told me, they want to know about you, how you grew up, what shaped you. You know, what is your story? And I was like, oh, OK. And, you know, the 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 book, uh, it went to auction. And I was like, oh, and I went to auction. Yeah. So that's when for people out there, that's when a bunch of different book publishers bid on the rights to your book. And, um, you know, Holt won. They came through and I was like, well, shit, I guess I got to write a memoir. huh?" <laughs> you know, and uh, 
you know, even though this was not the book I envisioned would be my first book, um, I really want to be a fiction writer. So in my mind, I'm thinking that's going to be my first book. But, um, you know, I didn't choose the memoir. The memoir kind of chose me. And one question. Let me let me let's dig in just a little bit deeper than that. Since I got you here. You know, a lot of people write books, but when you write memoirs, especially as, as I've, I've written one, it changes you. You learn so much. You, you, I mean, even there, if it's a good memoir, which yours is, I'm, and I know moments in the book that you just kind of look back at it and you're like, fuck, man, I just got to take a break. Like, I got to, I got to chill out for a second and maybe even shed a tear, drink some wood for whatever your drink of choice is. But mm-hmm. what changed you? What changed you while you were writing this book? What did you learn from yourself? So um, I learned a lot. And, you know, one of the things um, I think that it, it, it did was it made me have an appreciation for myself that I don't think I necessarily had. Um, this is not to say that I didn't recognize when I accomplished something or, you know, or, or anything like that. But I think sometimes we get so in the in the grind and the hustle of what we do that we don't take a moment to reflect or to think about like, man, I really have come a long way. And that was what this book, you know, really forced me to kind of sit with. It's like, oh, I've really come a long way. And yeah, I mean, definitely because I'm writing about I'm definitely because I'm writing about some very personal incidents that I was forced to relive some of, you know, the childhood trauma I experienced and relive certain incidents I hadn't really thought about in a long time. And yeah, there were times where I was writing and crying, you know, I mean, at least you had the sense to take a break, right? I just was like, I'm a power through this. And so, yeah, I just kept, I just kept going with it and that was fine. And my um, editor was so like, nah, we can't, you must've been drunk. We can't use that. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you might be right. <laughs> well, I mean, there was subject material that my book editor was like, are you, are you sure you're comfortable with sharing that? I'm like, I, I'm good. Cause I looked at it like this. You more than likely, I know some people do write more than one memoir, but you know, I'm going into it in the spirit that this is going to be the one and only memoir that I that I ever write about my, you know, obviously about myself. And if that's the case, I got to leave it all out there. And so I wanted to make sure I approach this with a very raw transparency. And um, I felt like that was the only way. <clears throat> I felt like that was the only way to really be um, you know, honest about myself and honest with myself is like I have to really go into it with the intention of being vulnerable, raw and real. For those that are listening, I've said this many times before for anybody who's going to write a book that is worth anything, that the book has to be honest. And if you're not prepared to be honest about yourself, then you don't even really need to write a book. One of the I know I don't have you for a long period of time, but one of the questions I do want to ask you kind of as we near our close on this time. I, I like to have my podcast is like treadmill train to work. I want to be able people to be able to listen to it in 30, 40 minutes. Um, how did Donald Trump change your life? And I posed that question. I posed it that way for a reason. So how did he change your life? <laughs> well, I think he, he made me, uh, he delivered me from a sense of complacency mm. and um, <clears throat> what I mean by that is this, 
you get to a place like ESPN, you know, biggest sports media vehicle in the country. And, you know, I was on a great contract hosting Sports Center, a job I honestly didn't like, which, you know, I give the reasons why in the book. Um, you know, I'm at, first of all, I, that, that, yes, blew my mind. Oh, the fact I was that like, I didn't, oh, yeah, because you got a lot of, a lot of, uh, <clears throat> Winston Salem State graduates over there who just enjoy all the trappings thereof. You don't need to respond yeah. to that. That's me, but go ahead. Yeah. I mean, but it's, it, I, I get it. Like, it's, it's one of those jobs that's a destination job that has been on a lot of people's vision board. It wasn't for me, but you know, even in that construct, there were things that I wanted to do outside of ESPN. And my mentality was, you know, I'll just, I'll just wait to this ESPN money run out and then I'll get to doing these other things. So that's where the complacent part comes in. Once the Trump thing happened and for that matter, ESPN's lack of response to him, um, you know, attacking me as a, as a citizen of this country and, more specifically that, attacking you as a black woman, because he don't attack every citizen with the fervor no, that he attacks no. black women. Yes. Uh, he he. It's like we must have tormented him in another life because he between me, Maxine Waters, Frederica Wilson, like he just he just that's what he does. So, um, you know, their lack of response was to me a real inflection point where I was like, oh, OK. I mean, I know that. We know anybody we work for is a conditional relationship. I was very well aware of that at ESPN, but having been there at that point, 11 years, you know, you, you develop, you know, feelings, you know what I'm saying? In terms of like, okay, this is a place I love. This is a place that has changed my life in so many ways. And just to see that lack of support, I mean, it felt like betrayal and I'm like, I'm not going to be in this position again. And I felt like our relationship had reached, the critical mass point. Like, I think, I think I might be done with them. Like, I, I don't know how we go back after that. We're not going to be able to go back to the way the thing, the way things were. I'm not going to be able to uh, uh, unforget this. And that was when I started thinking about for more seriously and more intentionally about what life looked like after ESPN. Now it was one year to a four year contract. So I was thinking I had a pretty long way to go before this, you know, leaving there could be a reality. But the Trump thing sped everything up and it gave me a window and an out because I know at that point, especially since ESPN at the time was in a very polarizing place, people were accusing the network of being too liberal, of being too political. My my incident aside, which as I often remind people, I didn't say this on SportsCenter about Donald Trump. I said it on Twitter. He said on Twitter. Okay. Yes. But nevertheless, ESPN was getting caught in some right wing political crosshairs. It started when they gave Caitlyn Jenner the Arthur Ashe Courage Award at the ESPYs. And once the face of ESPN started to change, as in you saw more women, more people of color having prominent shows and prominent positions at the network, um, suddenly ESPN is too liberal, right? You know, because that to me was the coded racism of it. So, um, yeah, I knew that they couldn't say this and they would probably, you know, were, were, would be afraid of what the reaction would be. Um, cause they didn't certainly want to look like that. They were trying to, um, you know, kick me out of ESPN or kick me off a of sports center, but I knew it was mutually beneficial if I wasn't there and if I wasn't, you know, on sports center. So I just waited to a strategic time 
and approached them first about leaving Sports Center, which I did. And so to all the people who like to say you got put off Sports Center, I did not. <laughs> I told them I wanted to go because I didn't enjoy the job. And we were having all kinds of creative issues uh, with the show. And when the time came uh, where I felt like they would be receptive to me leaving, I approached them about that too, saying, hey, listen, we've had a great relationship, but it's gone as far as it's going to go. I think we should be realistic about where things are. You know, I knew they didn't want me there any more than I wanted to be there. So it was time to go. And, uh, you know, I, I think looking at my where my career is right now, the agency I have, the autonomy that I have, um, you know, the partnerships I've been able to build, the different things I'm I'm able to do. If I don't want to do something, the answer is just simply no. If I do want to do something, I just decide to do it. Ain't no email chains, ain't no asking nobody, none of that. And I guess I have Donald Trump to thank for all of that. <laughs> That's how he changed my life. He brought me to a position of being able to live in a world where every job I have is a job that I want and not a job I need. Mm, I appreciate that much. While I got you real quick, a few last questions. How do you fix the Lakers? <laughs> you know, I know. LeBron shot that every seven last night for three-point range. I just want you to but know. They still, but they still the won. They still won. I mean, you know. Um, All right, you about to uh, piss off Kerry Champion with this answer, but go ahead. I'm not because I took Gary, I took Carrie to her face. She already knows the the problem with the Lakers goes deeper than Russell Westbrook. He is a convenient target for a lot of Lakers fans. They want to make Russ the only thing. Personally, I think the player who is kind of skated is Anthony Davis. Oh, and kinda. the man, that man get hurt when the wind blows. But you know, it's not even about the injury part of it. Even when he's healthy, there is somebody like him who has such a tremendous skill set and is such a unique player should be in the MVP conversation all the time. When is the last time Anthony Davis has been in that conversation? He just doesn't even, I mean, th that was a long time ago, a long time ago. Like Anthony Davis to me, a lot of times just does not play with a sense of urgency. He does not play with the sense that he wants to be the best at his position or one of the top three players in the league. He will have the quietest 20 of 10 games uh, you've ever seen. I'm like, was he there? He just, it's too many times where he doesn't have a presence. Um, you know, the last time you really felt Anthony Davis was in the bubble when they were in the playoffs. Like when he was playing, like, I'm that dude. And that's when I was thinking like, you know, oh, and <laughs> this, this is about to be his team. And it just, he just hasn't gotten back to that. You know who Anthony Davis reminds me of? And the athleticism is, Similar, but not the same. The position is the same. The size is different. But the way they play the game is. He reminds me of just a, a Zion Williamson and Anthony Davis are the same basketball player. They're different physical types, but they are the same basketball player. They attack the basket. They play defense. They are just I don't know. That's just my personal opinion. And I think I so think, you you feel like you feel like Zion doesn't play with a sense of urgency. At all. As well. And he's from South Carolina and I love him. And I love mm. him. And I, I think that Zion can give you 30, 31. And it's like when Zion came back to the Pelicans, there's Brandon Ingram's no longer the best player on the Pelicans team. People know that. Right. Night in and night out. But right. does he play hard or does he not? So who's coming out the East and West? Because right now, I think 
if I'm not mistaken, for the purposes of this conversation, and I may be wrong, but I doubt it, the best teams in the NBA in the East are the, the Cleveland Cavaliers in the East and the West – Oh man, I don't know who the best. Now you 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 forgot you uh, in the East. Uh, people forget. I think as of the recording of this, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks are undefeated. Oh, the Bucks and you know it's crazy. The Bucks and the Cavs have the best record in the league. That's actually right. Yeah, I was like, I think they they're undefeated. Um, I love I I love the Bucks, and especially like they're able to slip under the radar. Uh, a lot. It's in fucking uh, Milwaukee. It's in Milwaukee. Well, that's but why. that's not the only reason. It's because all the drama elsewhere. It's like the most dramatic team in the East right now is the is the Brooklyn Nets. Okay, so it's like because of what's going on with the Nets, and then you know uh, why we've been sitting here. So now, and I, it was announced Harden is going to be out for a month. You know, Philly doesn't look. They just they look okay. Yeah. No. And then you know you you have the, the drama in Boston. Uh, you know, even though the they they still I think uh, will be one of the contending teams. I'm not gonna pick Milwaukee though, even though I do love them. I still like Boston. Gotta be honest, I still like Boston. Um, and this may be a running back situation. Uh, I like Golden State. I know they've struggled as of late, but I think those guys know that this is it. The, the Golden band State, Golden State, two of their best players have seen the hill, have been to the top of the hill, and they're on their way down. And with all due respect to to the Michigan State guy, (laughs) he is closer to the bottom of that hill than anybody else. (laughs) Because him and Clay are on the other side of the hill. And it's just going to be tough because that monster they got, and I don't know if he's from Serbia, Slovenia, or whatever, but that damn Luka Doncic is a monster. He is, but I, I, but I wonder if it'll be the same problem that has been with that team the last couple of years. Is that I don't know that they have enough adequate support around him, yeah. and his usage rate has got to be really it's, high. It's LeBron esque. It's LeBron. In order for them to win, yeah. it's like it's he got to drag this team, and I don't know if he has it in him. And and listen, Golden State, they to me have the 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 most room for error. And I like teams who have large, who are talented, who have a big room for error. Like Phoenix doesn't have that. Okay, none of the Lakers. They ain't even in the picture, right? They they'd be lucky they make the playoffs. And I refuse, I refuse to have any any belief in the Clippers. Let me just say that. Are you? You cannot. My last question to you about basketball, because I got to ask it before I let you go, is Damian Lillard. Explain to me. Damian Lillard being in the top 75, explain to me him staying in Portland. Explain to me what happens to Damian Lillard, somebody who will never win a championship because he's in Portland, but being one of the best business people we've ever seen to play the sport. You know, Damian Lillard, I think, you know, he he's a guy – Kobe, remember, Kobe played 20 years with the Lakers. There's a lot of guys who actually – would love to do that. And I think he feels a loyalty to that city, a loyalty to that franchise. I think he wants to be one of the guys who did it the long way. You know, like Steph has only been with the Golden State Warriors, and granted they've been able to win multiple championships. But, you know, when when Steph was there, uh, when he was drafted, 
I don't know that people saw them having the championship window that they have now. So I think Damian Lillard just feels like if he just sticks it out long enough, eventually it will pay off. Um, now, in terms of him being in the, in the top 75, you know, I know people kind of looked at that and saying like, eh, has he really done enough to do that? To me, the more egregious one was Anthony Davis. I know people don't think I can't stand this man, but I I was it, like, Jesus, Anthony, I like to, Anthony. I, didn't even ask I love <laughs> I know. But the reason I by think the way, that is way, your, more point, egregious to your point. And, and, and the reason Dwight Howard should be in the in the 75, by the way. Oh, not only and, and people don't think I'm biased, but I'm not really biased because that, that would be a weird bias to have. But Vince Carter is more accomplished than Damian Lillard as well. Hmm. Hmm. I can't think went, about that. Yeah, Vince Con- Vince Carter actually went to NBA Finals with the New Jersey Nets. He did. That's true. I'm just thinking. I'm like, hmm. I'm just. I'm just thinking of their resumes. I'm like, ah. Uh, yeah, uh, think about okay. those resumes as you part. But All I right. do believe Dwight Howard got shitted. I don't know why. Oh, I he mean, got I robbed, know. man. It, I know. Like I that. Know, and he's gonna live with that for the rest of his life. I know. I mean, I don't blame him, uh, you know, for being upset because, I mean, he he drugged that Orlando team to the finals. He, he beat LeBron. Us, he deprived us of the LeBron. LeBron had to hit a game-winning 40-foot jump shot for them not to be swept. That's that's a fact. Anyway, yeah. I know Bianca's going to get mad. You got the best team in the business. Jamil Hill <laughs> is unbothered. Her memoir is out now. Everywhere books are sold. She's an amazing individual. Just a beautiful person. And thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thank you. Appreciate you.